Well, it's glad to, good to be here. Glad to see everyone this evening. Glad I didn't scare you off last week with uh, systematic theology. Um, really excited about tonight diving into our first um, topic, bibliology. Um, to get us going, I have an outline. Uh, debated, should I do it? Um, pros and cons with outlines. People cheat when you give them an outline. They look ahead. Um, so don't do that. I'm going to be asking you some questions. Um, can someone help me pass these out? If I don't have enough, I can make some afterwards. Um, but I think it's also helpful. Um, we have a lot of content we're going to be going through, and I don't want it to be the fire hydrant, but at the same time, uh, I want to get through everything. Um, so if you miss something, that's what the outline is for. Um, you can jot notes on it. Um, so good. All right, so how about I open us up in a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll get going. I'm sorry, people are passing outlines out. Let's uh, let you do that first. I've got to readjust this pulpit while I'm waiting. Right under this thing, getting some echoes. <clears throat> while we're mentioning outlines, I also printed about 10 copies of the outline from last week. Um, so if you weren't here, or if you were here and you want to get the notes on it, uh, come find me afterwards, and I can, uh, can get those to you if you would like. Um. <clears throat> so while they're passing those out, um, systematic theology, what do you remember from last week, just by way of review? What is systematic theology? Anyone want to uh, break the ice, take a stab? Uh-oh. <laughs> yes, Jim. Excellent. It's a method of theology. We, know, we listed a number of methods. It's a method, um, and it seeks to answer the question, um, what does the entire Bible teach about any subject, any topic? Um, it seeks to collect it all, to organize it, so it's, so it's easy to understand and use and apply to to our lives, and we discuss why that's also important, why we need systematic theology. You do systematic theology whether you realize it or, or not. Um, so this week, we're going to dive into to bibliology, and, and before we do, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you. Um, thank you for your word. We're going to look in it this evening to learn what it teaches us about itself. and um, Father, I ask that you would um, grow us to love it, to treasure it, um, to subject ourselves to it. Um, it is the word of God, and we thank you for it. And Bless the teaching tonight. Ask that it would be clear, that it would be helpful, and we would be built up. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be beginning systematic theology with bibliology. So bibliology, fancy term for the doctrine of Scripture, um, the study of, of Scripture. We said last week that for our theology to be true, it must be built on the foundation of Scripture. It must be built on the foundation of Scripture. But before we begin building on that foundation, it's important that we talk about that foundation a little bit. We get that foundation securely in place. Um, if we don't, if we misunderstand this foundation, what is the Bible? 
It will affect everything that we do when we build on it. Um, So the Bible has a lot to teach us about many things, but did you know the Bible has a lot to teach us about itself? Um, The Bible teaches us about the Bible, and that is what we're going to learn tonight. And uh, this study of the doctrine of Scripture will last uh, five five weeks, um, and this is uh, week number number two. We're going to begin this study with the necessity of Scripture. So this is stop one in our tour of bibliology, the necessity of of Scripture. The Bible is not only important for our life, it is essential. We talk a lot around around here about the sufficiency of Scripture, Um, rightly so. The sufficiency of Scripture says the Bible is all we need uh, for life and in godliness. That's true. But the necessity of Scripture takes it a step further. The Bible's not just all we need. The Bible is the only option we have. There's nothing else on the, left on the shelf. It is an absolute necessity. If we neglect the Scriptures and seek help from somewhere else, we've not only neglected the thing that has all the answers, we've neglected our only hope. No. That is the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture. So to get us going, I invite you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This will be our launching pad for, for tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 8. have the verse on the screen if uh, you did not bring your Bible. We're going to be doing a lot of page turning tonight. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Let me read it for you. It says, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So according to this verse, one of the main reasons God gave manna to the people in the wilderness was not just to feed them, it was to teach them about the insufficiency of manna to give them true life. True life is not just physical existence, it is a relationship with God. Manna could not do that. It was meant to teach them that man lives only by the Word of God, not by anything else, not manna, not anything else, but only the the Scriptures. So I want to make a couple points here. You can see what I have underlined. Um, The verse is teaching us about the exclusivity of Scripture. So it's the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone which are necessary for your life. Look what it says here. It says man lives by every word. So it's not just the Scriptures alone, but it's the entirety of the Scriptures. It says man lives by every word. In other words, everything that God has spoken in the Scriptures is necessary for our lives. You see that? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord is necessary for life. So when we speak about the necessity of Scripture, we mean that only the Scripture And all of the Scriptures, every part of them, every word of the Scripture is necessary for life. 
Sounds very similar to a, a verse Paul said. Can you think of where it might be? 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, not some of it, all of it, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's necessary for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Scriptures alone are necessary, and the Scriptures in their entirety are necessary. There's a number of illustrations the Bible gives for this truth of the necessity of Scripture. Uh, we just saw one of them is food, right? Um, just like you need food for your physical life, you need the Scriptures. Um, what are some other illustrations? Can you, can you think of any? There's one that I'm thinking of that is used often. Light. Light and darkness. Let me show you a few, a few verses. It comes over and over again. The scriptures like food. You need food, um, but you need light. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. In other words, without the Scriptures, we are left completely in the dark about who God is um, under the judgment of God, um, what the will of God is. We, we're in the dark. Um, and if ever you've been in the dark, you know how Essential light is. That's what the scriptures are. They're, they're, they're light. They expose reality for what it really is. It is necessary. So those are some basic scriptural affirmations of this truth. And uh, for the rest of our study tonight, I want to ask two questions. The first one is, why are the scriptures necessary? Why are they necessary? And number two, the question is, what are the scriptures necessary for? To some things, all things, how, how, how do we know? So why are they necessary and what are they necessary for? To get us going, we're, we're going to need to talk a little bit about revelation in general. Revelation, how God has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself in two basic ways. What are they? You should know this. In his... Create general revelation, good. General revelation, also known as natural revelation, creation. What's the other way? Special revelation, also known as particular revelation. He's revealed himself through creation, and he's revealed himself through his particular intervention into history. Sometimes that is in verbal communication, right? Adam, Abraham, Noah, Moses... Sometimes he reveals himself in mighty acts, right? The Exodus. Sometimes, ultimately, how did God reveal himself? Through who? Through the Word of God, Jesus Christ. So God has revealed himself in many ways, generally, in, revela in uh, general revelation and creation, and then particularly by intervening in, in history. And the way in which God has preserved all of that revelation that he has done in history, his communication that he wants you to know 
The way he's preserved that for us is in written Scripture. So when we ask, why are the Scriptures necessary? We are asking, why is it necessary that God intervenes into creation and speaks particularly to us? Why is general revelation not enough? Why is it necessary that we have the Scriptures special revelation? And here is the answer, and then we will pick it apart. Very simple. The Scriptures, i.e. special revelation, are necessary because of the insufficient nature of general revelation. So that is um, not hard, uh, but we are going to unpack that um, here now. Why? Why is general revelation insufficient? First answer is general revelation is insufficient owing to its own nature. Owing to its own nature. So we've already said general revelation. What do we mean? We mean revelation. That's God's communication. Right? He's revealing himself. He's communicating something about himself. And when we say general, the idea there is it's universal in its scope. It's applicable to all people. No one escapes it. Okay? So go to Psalm 19 with me. Very familiar passages. Um, but very important. Psalm 19. And notice how the psalm emphasizes two things. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. It emphasizes this communication that's going out through creation, and it's emphasizing the universal scope of the communication. See if you can pick these out. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare, there's communication word, the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's general revelation. It's in creation. Words like declare, proclaim, speech, knowledge, all these things tell us that information. God is communicating to us something about himself through creation. And it's also inescapable. All the world, the ends of the earth, nothing hidden. It's general. It's universal in its, in its reach. Go over to Romans chapter 1 with me. I won't spend much time here because we have been plowing through Romans. Um, some wonderful messages so far. It's been, it's been rich and sweet. Um, but we will hit a couple high points from, from Romans 1. Look at verse 21. Romans 1, verse 21. This is Paul's conclusion. He says, although they knew God. Although they knew God. All people, in some sense... Know God. 
How? How do they know God? It's because God has given them this knowledge in creation. Look back at verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So all people know God in some sense, and it's known through creation. But just what is known about God through creation? What's included in this revelation? What is he communicating to us in general revelation specifically? We're going to unpack that really quickly. What is the content of general revelation? We'll go through these quickly. Number one, it tells us that God exists. And he is gloriously powerful. Look up verse 20 again of Romans 1. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So something of God's divine attributes, his existence, his divine nature, that he exists, he is God, and that he's powerful. Those two things can be seen and known through creation itself by all people. Number two. That he is the creator. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. How did they know him? Look back right before. In the things that have been made. Psalm 19, verse 1. Remember it said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. He made it. He's the He's the creator. From general revelation, we can know that God exists, He's gloriously powerful, and He is the Creator. What else can be known from general revelation? That God is good and is the preserver of all things. Go with me to Acts, if you will. Hold your hand in Romans. We'll be coming back here. Acts chapter 14, Paul is preaching to Gentile pagans in Lystra. Chapter 14 of Acts, look at verse 15. He says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness. Why? Because he did good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So every time people enjoy some good from creation, a good meal, marriage, family, food, something from God's creation, they are experiencing God's self-witness, which testifies to the fact that He exists as the Creator and He is especially good. He's good. He's the cause of all good things. That should be known by all men from creation. Number four, the Creator must be much more glorious than His Creation. Look over at chapter 17 of Acts. Paul is now on Mars Hill. Chapter 17. 
Creator must be much more glorious than His creation. Chapter 17, verse 27. Paul says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul quotes two of their poets, Epimenides of Crete and Erastus, pagan Greek philosophers and and poets, to show that even these pagans realize that humanity owes their existence to God. We are his offspring, they say. And if we humans are much more wonderful and full of life and complexity than gold and silver and stone and sticks, then how much more the very God to whom we owe our lives? That's Paul's point. How much more glorious must the Creator be than His creation? That should be known through natural revelation. Number five. Natural revelation also communicates a universal sense of morality. Go back to Romans 1. A universal sense of morality. Look at verse 32. Look at the word know. He says know often. Although they know God's decree. How do they know it? General revelation. Although they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So people possess a basic sense of right and wrong, and they also know that that wrong must be punished. That's in natural revelation. Finally, number six, God must be extraordinarily long-suffering and gracious. Natural revelation teaches us this God who's all glorious and powerful and good, who must also punish sin and wrongdoing, which we know, and yet He hasn't yet. By inference, He must be especially gracious and long-suffering. Listen to a couple of the Psalms. Psalm 33, verse 5, The earth is full of the chesed, the grace, the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 119.64, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. So in summary, God has revealed himself generally, universally, through creation. And this revelation, what it communicates about God, results in a real, inescapable knowledge of God. Paul says, although they knew God. And that's it. That's what general revelation can give you. But before we move on, what are some things not in this list? What are some things it cannot give you? Any thoughts? Good. 
That's right. How to have a relationship with him. Good. Yeah, who we are. Yeah, who is man? What are we like? Yeah, Mark. Excellent. How can we be made right with him? Good. Anything else? Really, the list is endless. Um, we have six points here, what it communicates. We could have thousands of what it does not communicate. Um, that's what we're going to talk about um, the rest of our evening. Um, the question is, um, next, the general content of Revelation. Next is the limited nature of general Revelation. General Revelation does not teach us everything the Bible teaches us about God. It does not teach us that God is triune. It does not even teach us that there is one God, although that might be able to be deduced, careful thinking. It doesn't teach us about Jesus Christ. It doesn't teach us about salvation. All we can know from natural revelation is that we are guilty before God. We have a sense of right and wrong, and we know it must be punished. But how that can be remedied is not known. We can't know the creation story. We cannot know the manifold attributes of of God, what He's like. We cannot know His specific will, His commandments, and His demands. We can know very little from general revelation. Why not? Why not? It doesn't reveal any of these things because God never intended general revelation to reveal any of these things. It is by nature limited. God is by nature limited natural revelation. When God first created the the universe in its unfallen state, before man sinned, the creation was meant to function, to display and reveal the glory of God to his perfect creatures who were in relationship with him. They were meant to be um, a reason, a display of God's glory so that man could respond to them with worship, with awe, with reverence, with delight. That's how we believers respond to general revelation. We shouldn't throw it away. It's good. It's important. I love to go out at night and just pray and look at the stars and just think how glorious he must be, how great he must be. That's the purpose of it. That's how it was to function before the fall. But it was never meant to teach man everything about God because man was still in fellowship with God. Man could talk with God and be present with God. The creation was simply meant to display the glory of the Creator to the creation. And it was never meant to do anything more than that. And now that we've fallen into sin, it's insufficient to communicate the additional truths about God we need to be saved. John Feinberg put it this way. Because original revelation was given before humans fell into sin, it did not include information about how to remedy our sinful lost estate. Once the race fell into sin, humans needed information about how to restore their lost relationship with God. We needed revelation that is soteriological. That means related to salvation in nature. God did give this kind of revelation, but not as part 
of natural or general revelation. So that's the groundwork um, of what God's general revelation is and what it includes and what it does not include. And now we're ready to consider another reason it is insufficient. So it's insufficient owing to its nature, and it's insufficient owing to the constitution of mankind. By that I mean the makeup, who we are as, as, as people. Um, it's insufficient because of that as well. We need something more than general revelation to know God, to know His will rightly and savingly. That's first, because it's limited in nature and also because of our constitution. Well, what is that? Who, who are we? Well, number one, we are depraved. We are depraved. Creation is indeed revealing God truly to His creation with real information which is inescapable such that none can say they don't know God. But the problem is that it is revealing this information to fallen humanity. We mentioned a bit ago that natural revelation is insufficient to communicate salvific truth because it was never intended to do that. But here the point is that even what it does reveal about God, even those basic things, elementary, small, basic things, even that, what it communicates, it is communicating to man who is in rebellion to his maker. Look back at Romans 1, if you've gone away, and look at verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the rest of the chapter goes on to unpack how mankind does that. Give you a few instances. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to have God in their knowledge. That's how man suppresses the, the truth. He sees it, he knows it, and he twists it or perverts it or ignores it. And he does it in a number of ways in order to slough off accountability to Creator. I don't want Him as He really is. I'll make Him in my image. Mankind is never led by general revelation to a proper response to God or to a proper theology about God. In his unrighteousness, he always suppresses the truth about God that is available to him. So you might ask, how can man be guilty? How can God punish if that's all we have? All we, all we have is those six points that general revelation can, can communicate. How can God punish people who've never heard the gospel? I mean, that information's not in general revelation. And the answer to that is very, very simple. God punishes people for their sinful responses to His revelation that they possess. Chapter 1, verse 21, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him. They knew Him to some extent, and they did not respond. 
even to the little bit about God that they did possess, mankind responds with a failure to honor and give thanks to God as they should. So no, it's not enough to save, but it is enough to hold people accountable, to honor and obey. And yet because of depravity, people always fail to do something as basic as this. So put it this way. No one is being punished for not responding to revelation they do not have. They will be punished and condemned for the rejection and failure to worship God on the basis of what they do have. No one will be punished for not believing in the gospel who never heard the gospel. They will be punished for not owning up to what little bit God did give to them in general revelation. And nobody owns up to it and responds as they they ought. So natural revelation is sufficient to hold man accountable to God, but it's insufficient to do anything more than to condemn. That's it. It cannot lead to a proper knowledge of God because whatever truth it gives, it's suppressed, ignored, twisted. That's why it is insufficient, the depravity of man. Number two, the finitude of man. By that, I simply mean we're finite. We're little. We're small. Um, I'll show you a little picture here. You see that little speck of dust up there? I don't even you can see that. This is a picture of Earth from the surface of Mars. You know what you look like? You're a little speck of dust. Um, I had this out of my wallpaper on my computer for a while. Um, I'm nerdy, I know. Uh, wanted to remind myself we're little, we're small, um, we're finite. This is the next reason why natural revelation is insufficient. We're small, we are finite. This is the reason why mankind has always been in need of something more than general revelation. Did you know that even before man fell into sin, before Adam and Eve were depraved, they were still finite beings? Now, we don't think about that often, but they were. If the fallen condition of our hearts was not enough to hinder the knowledge of God, now the point is that our finiteness hinders our knowledge of God. So when is the first time we encounter God speaking into his creation? Do you know? Speaking with man. Very good. There's actually a time earlier than that. Go to Genesis 1. This is pre-fall. Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 28. He creates Adam and Eve, and it says in verse 28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, God's commission for humanity 
had to be made known through special revelation. They were not going to get that from general revelation because they're finite. Look over at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat you shall surely die. In other words, God's will for Adam. Adam's task in keeping the garden and the prohibition to eat the tree were communicated to Adam from God. They were not discovered in creation. He's finite. Even before the fall, he needed a communicative word from God to know his will, who he is specifically. John Feinberg again says, Why, before Adam and Eve fell into sin and were blinded to truth, spiritual and otherwise, did they need revelation? Revelation was necessary because even before the fall, Adam and Eve were finite intellectually, morally, and spiritually. Their finitude was not sinful, but because of it, there were many things about their world and themselves that they did not know. And there must have been many gaps in their knowledge about God who had created them, especially about what he expected of them. So that's perhaps an even more fundamental reason why we need God's direct word to us if we are to know him and his will and what he wants from us, what he demands, what he's accomplished, how we must respond because this information is not a natural revelation. We are finite. And we have no other way to get it. That's what made the law such a gift. So when you think of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, what do you think of? You, you might think of the abuses of the law in the New Testament, using it as a legalistic system. That's not at all what the law was. The law was a special gift from God to his people. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 with me. It was a grace gift to them. What took place at Sinai was that God, by grace, was coming again to dwell with his people, and the first thing he does is give them his word. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, You should do them in the land you're going to take possession of. Drop down to verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as us? All this law that I set before you today. In the law, God made known to Israel what was impossible to be made known any other way. He revealed his character, his righteous rules, his punishment for sin, and how that sin could be dealt with. Daniel Block, in his commentary on this uh, passage, says, whereas the Israelites knew the will of their God because he had revealed it to them, the way of the other peoples relating to their gods was always experimental. The best they could do was guess what should please their gods. But even then, they would never know whether their assessment was right, whether their conclusions measured up to the standards of righteousness, and whether adherence won the good will of the gods. Listen to this 
prayer, um, an ancient Sumerian prayer um, to a god. Uh, what is this? The 7th century B.C. Just listen to the hopelessness and then think about why the law was such a gift. May my Lord's heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. May the God who has turned away from me be reconciled. May the goddess who has turned away from me be reconciled. I do not know what wrong I have done. I have um, perpetrated unwittingly an abomination. O Lord, many are my wrongs, many are my sins. I do not know what sin I have committed. A God has made me face the fury of his his heart. Turn towards me, be merciful to me, I implore you. How long, O God, whoever you are, until your angry heart is calmed. This person, um, sad, that's all he has, and that's any person, any religion, any philosophy which is not grounded on special revelation. That's all you have. Again, Daniel Flock says, this person is sure of three things. The gods are angry with him, his sin has caused the anger, and he must do something about the sin to placate the gods' wrath. But his ignorance is also threefold. He does not know which god it is that's angry. And he does not know what the crime is that provoked the divine fury. And he does not know what it will take to placate the wrath of the gods. No wonder the psalmists praise the law of the Lord like they do. More to be desired than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter than honey. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Walk in the law of the Lord. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I am a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Without the law, we're in darkness. We do not know um, God, his law, how to be right with him. Flip over really quick to Deuteronomy 30. Um, A bunch to still get through, but I want to make a... Hammer this point home for you. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Moses says, For this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you, um, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? The idea that God's law is not something hidden in heaven, which man has to go up there and get and bring back down for us, which none of you can do that. Um, The idea is God has graciously stooped in his word with his revelation, what we need to know him. Go now to Proverbs chapter 30. This picture is picked up again, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30 might be my favorite chapter in Proverbs. It's the words of a man named Agur, Proverbs 30. That's what he says. Look at verse 2. Proverbs 30, verse 2. He says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. 
So Agur has come to an end of his pursuits for wisdom and understanding with despair. He's concluded what that person praying concluded, what we read earlier. By himself, he has not gained wisdom. Well, why? Look at verse 3. He says, nor have I attained knowledge of the Holy One. It's because wisdom, to be wisdom at all, must be able to give a knowledge of God. And Agur, by himself, could not do that apart from Scripture. He couldn't find a knowledge of, of God. What is the fundamental element of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. You have to know God. And man on his own cannot do that apart from Scripture. And so you can't have any wisdom or knowledge. Look at verse 4. It sounds like Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Who has gone up to heaven and come down? question is, the only person that can have true wisdom is if you can go up to heaven and see God, know who He is, and have comprehensive knowledge of everything that there is to know, and bring it back to earth. And then you can have wisdom and knowledge. And Agra said, who's done that? The answer is no one. You have not. Agra has not. And no one can. Put it this way, unless you know everything there is to know, you can have no certain knowledge about anything. Who here knows everything there is to know? No one. Agar's point is, if you don't know everything there is to know, you cannot know anything absolutely. Why? It's always the chance that you missed something. Always the chance that you misinterpreted something. Listen to Cornelius Van Til make, make this point here. He says, man who seeks knowledge within himself as the final reference point will have to hold that if he cannot attain to such an exhaustive understanding of reality, he has no true knowledge of anything at all. Either man must know everything or he knows nothing. This is the dilemma that confronts every form of non-Christian Epistemology. Epistemology, a fancy word for the study of how we know what we know. If you don't know everything, you can't know anything. Bruce Waltke, a, a, a scholar of Old Testament, wrote commentary on Proverbs. When I was studying through Proverbs a few years back, um, came across this story he gives. It, it vividly illustrates this point. It tells a story about a time he taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. And they had just built this beautiful new library on, on campus. He said it was the best building on campus, as you can imagine. And the, the professors, their, their offices were surrounding the main stack of books in the library. So the professor's offices were, were there on the outside. And he had a, a new student that just came who used to work at NASA. And um, formerly, his, his job tested concentrations of radon gas um, connection with NASA, and comes up to Dr. Waltke's office and, and sets up his instruments just to see, I wonder what the uh, concentration of radon gas is here in, in your office. And uh, now to understand this example, you need to know how to measure radon gas. We got any chemistry people in here? You measure radon gas by what's called a, a unit of a picocurie, per liter of air. And the average level of radon gas in a home in the United States is 1.3 picocuries per liter of air. An average uranium mine 
uh, where some of the concentrations are the highest, um, could be approximately several hundred picocuries of liter of air, um, so strong that the miners have to take every three years off to detox so they're not getting poison from this, from this gas. Well, he sets up his instruments in, the, uh, in Dr. Walkie's office, and he comes to find that the radon gas coming through Westminster's library were almost ten times higher than a uranium mine. Um, the report that came out later said radon levels in the library basement were between 1,400 and 2,000 picocuries per liter of air in one week. Um, so as you can imagine, the library was immediately shut down until they could resolve the, the problem. Um, it was later discovered by geologists that massive vents under the ground were letting uh, the, this, this gas up. Um, through, the, through the library. And the report noted this was the highest radon reading in a commercial-style building known in the country. The point is, what Westminster thought would be the ideal location for a library actually proved to be the worst location in the entire United States. Um, well, why? It's because they didn't have comprehensive knowledge. They didn't know everything there was to know. And so they could have no certain knowledge that what they were doing was the best. And the same for us. Man can do what he thinks is best, but because he doesn't know everything there is to know, he can have no certain knowledge about anything. Wayne Grudem said, In this sense, then, it is correct to say that for people who are not omniscient, the Bible is necessary for certain knowledge about anything. You say, well, Michael, that's impossible. And I say, you're right. That's why you need revelation. That's why God must speak. And he has spoken in his word. So it's insufficient because of its nature. It's insufficient owing to our depravity. And it's insufficient owing to our finitude. So let's go on. Got a couple minutes left, 10-ish minutes. Try to fly through these. What are they necessary for? Must have them. God must speak to us. It's necessary. What is it necessary for? I have four things. We'll hit them quickly. Number one, they're necessary for our knowledge of the gospel and overcoming our depravity. Go back to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, they're not necessary for knowledge of the gospel and overcoming our depravity. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul was urgent in his missions to the Gentiles because he knew their accountability to God, natural revelation, and because he possessed the only thing that could reconcile them to their creator, the gospel. Man cannot discover the gospel on his own. Um, it's also necessary to overcome our depravity. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of what? God for salvation. Natural revelation cannot overcome the suppressing depravity of man. Only 
the gospel, only the word of God. Um, you're born again through the living and abiding word of God, 1 Peter 1 tells us. All right? That's what it's necessary for. Number two, it's necessary for God to be our covenant Lord. What do I mean? Let me read you a long quote by, by John Frame, but he puts it so well. Old Testament revelation was covenantal. It is an aspect of Israel's relationship to her Lord. The Lord-servant relationship is a relationship in which language is essential. The Lord sets forth the terms of the covenant in words, and the servant accepts these and seeks to abide by them. Without words, there can be no covenant, no Lord. Further, in a covenant, the words take on a permanent form in writing, and they are preserved from one generation to another. So the very nature of covenant implies that there will be written revelation and that that revelation will have the same power, authority, and divine presence as direct personal revelation from the covenant Lord. So the written words of the Old Testament are the personal words of God to his people. In other words, when God comes to make a covenant on Sinai, what is the first thing that he does? He gives them written scripture. The Ten Commandments. And that truth carries over to the New Testament as well. God mediates His authority and His presence with you through the inscripturated Word. We experience a relationship with God through a written document. Isn't that amazing? That's how you experience a covenant relationship with the Lord, through a written book. Without his word, there is no relationship at all. So let me illustrate this from the New Testament. Um, the way we relate, we relate to Christ is through his words. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. <clears throat> Why do we need the scriptures? It's necessary for God to be our covenant. Lord, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Our obedience to Christ is governed by His words. You can't have a relationship with Christ apart from His words. John, go to John now, chapter 14. Our love to Christ is expressed through obedience to his words. John 14, verse 15, you know it well. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So you have a relationship of obedience to God. That's directed through words. You have a relationship of love, and that works through the words. And then go back to John chapter 8. Our identity as disciples is determined by how we treat his Words. Look at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. God's words are necessary, not just for information. They are the way in which we enjoy a relationship with God. Without them, there is no relationship. Number three, 
They are necessary for our evaluation of God's natural revelation. How many have heard the expression, all truth is God's truth? Anyone heard that before? Yeah? Um, what do people mean when they, when they say that? All truth is God's truth. Um, what people mean is that there, there's other truth out there which can be known without the aid of Scripture and which stands on the same level as Scripture. In other words, if something is true, then it should be treated as truth, regardless of whether it's found in the Bible or, or not. So they're not denying the importance of Scripture. They're elevating something else, though, to the same level as Scripture. All truth is God's truth. What's the problem with that? Two things, really quickly. What's the problem with this? The problem is that the Scriptures are not just a source of truth. They are the truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth, your Word is truth. It's not just true. It is the standard. It's the measure of truth. It's necessary to be the, the glasses, the lenses, the spectacles through which we examine anything else. It is the ultimate standard of truth. Nothing can be known rightly unless it's known through the truths of Scripture. What's another problem with this? Another problem with this is that the Scriptures are not just for one realm of life. Like our spiritual life. And everything else we need is um, for non-spiritual matters can be discovered on, on our own independent from Scripture. All truth is God's truth. What's wrong with that? Um, it's treating God's truth. Yeah, that's good for some things, but we need other things that, that the Bible doesn't or, or cannot give us. This is the error of Thomas Aquinas. Um, there's our friend, old Thomas. Um, he taught that sacred doctrine was dealt with man's salvation, and you needed revelation for that, but philosophy dealt with everything else, affairs in, in this life, and that was governed by human reason. Um, so he gave primacy to Scripture, but he limited its scope. So, for example, Aristotle taught that the earth existed forever. And Aquinas rejected that because it contradicted Scripture. That's right, you should do that. But that's as far as it went. Human reason, he said, was free to function, was able to function without Scripture to understand our world and our life and have a good life. In other words, Aristotle's sufficient to teach us about earthly matters, but if you, if you want to learn about heaven, then you need to hear from God. The problem with that is we, we've just seen natural reason apart from Scripture. Not only you don't only perish when you die; you don't know anything rightly, as it ought to be known. John Frame again says it like this: He says, according to Scripture, God's revelation is not needed for only one area of human life and knowledge; it is needed for all areas of life. God's revelation in Scripture itself does not tell us only how to obtain eternal life. It also instructs us about marriage and finances, society, music, art, scholarship, everything human. Indeed, matters of this life cannot be strictly separated from matters of the next. 
The Bible calls on us to live in this world with an eye to eternity. Everything we should do should be done to the glory of God. And we could unpack this a lot more. Um, last one, and uh, I know we are pressing for time. Number four, it's necessary to know the gospel. It's necessary for God to be our covenant Lord. It's necessary to be those spectacles through which we evaluate everything, the standard of truth for all of life. And number four, it's necessary to sustain our spiritual lives. Um, Deuteronomy 8.3, man lives by bread alone. You can stop feeding on Scripture, my friends, when you stop feeding on food. Um, it's a primary tool for our sanctification. Sanctify them by your truth. If you want to be sanctified, you need the Scriptures. It's necessary to keep you from sin. Psalm 119.11, your word, what? Have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you? You need it. It's essential for our growth in the knowledge of God. It's essential to teach us about God's will and and how to live life. We need Scripture. And God has given it to us as a precious, precious gift. Um, so it is 6.15, and uh, systematic theology exists for application, remember? Um, so if you'll give me one minute to go over time, you tell me, how should this change our lives? <coughs> Scriptures are ne- necessary said why they're necessary. We said a few things they're necessary for. How should we live differently this week in light of these truths? Yeah. Yeah. Massive gratitude should be in our hearts. Yeah, good. Yeah, Ed. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, drive us. Do you feel that kind of necessity when you open your Bible in the mornings? Um, remember, every word of God. It's um, why we do exposition. It's why we read the Bible. Every bit of it. You need every part of it. You need Leviticus. You need Deuteronomy. You need every bit of it. It's all for your spiritual nourishment. For all of life. Not just for some parts of life. Remember? it's good. Anything else? Implications? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Good. He said it's easier to admire it when we, we bring our lives up under it and submit it to it. It's good. There's a uh, quote. Uh, I remember John Piper a long time ago. I remember him saying, um, he's talking about personal devotions, encouragement for personal devotions, how we weigh priorities. He said, no Bible, no breakfast. Um, I don't think he's being legalistic there. He means... If you have time for breakfast, to nourish your life with food, but don't have time for the scriptures, it reveals that we've forgotten how necessary they are for, for our lives. Do I eat them as something just as necessary for food? Um, or can I live my day without them? All right. I am sorry I kept you over. I had to open the fire hydrant and let it all, all out. So... Um, you have your outline. If you have questions, I would love to talk with you about them. Um, and uh, we'll go. So I'm looking forward to next week, the authority of Scripture.
This is why it's necessary, and then we're going to really look in, uh, what is it? Uh, it's authoritative. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. You've not left us like um, hopeless humanity who's guilty, who suppresses your truth. Oh Lord, but who has no way of knowing you. All we could say is, I know I'm guilty. I know you're there. and I have no idea how to remedy my sin. You've given us Christ. You've given us your word. You've given us your commandments and your will and who you are. And Oh God, thank you. Help us be a people who eat the Bible. Um, Help us to feel we need it for every part of life. We love you. Give thanks to you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Bless them this week. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.